Good evening. Just a few interesting bits of uh, information, some notes. There's a saying in uh, Buddhism, especially in the Pali tradition, they say that the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And we could translate that and say paying attention is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. We could say being ethical is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. It's never harmful to be ethical. Or clarity of mind is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Or an openness of heart is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Or making better choices is good in the middle, good in the beginning, good in the end. So when we talk about dharma, we really talk about our, our life, this, this life. We talk about can we have the clarity of mind and the presence of mind that we are doing what is best right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. There, uh, Alan uh, just gave, he, every few months he gives me a big bundle of newspapers to take to Chosen, and it's the New York Times Science Time Supplement, and it's filled with all sorts of interesting articles. There is a, an article in it, I was just looking at it right now, called Lotus Therapy, <clears throat> On the, and it's from uh, May, just a couple of weeks ago. And in Lotus Therapy, it basically is talking about dharma. It's basically talking about mindfulness, the mindfulness that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. One of the things that it says in here is that Lotus Therapy, mindfulness, a new old path, uh, quotes, has just taken off, said Zendel Siegel, a psychologist at the Center of Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, where the above group therapy session was taped. And I think it's a big part of this is that more and more therapists are practicing some form of contemplation themselves and want to bring that into therapy. At workshops and conferences across the country, students, counselors, and psychologists in private practice throng to lectures on mindfulness. The United Institute, the National Institutes of Health is financing more than 50 studies testing mindfulness techniques up from three in, two, in the year 2000 to help relieve stress, soothe addictive cravings, improve attention, lift despair, and reduce hot flashes. <laughs> Some proponents say the Buddha's arrival in psychotherapy signals a broader opening in the culture at large, a way to access deeper healing, a hidden path revealed. Many researchers now worry that the enthusiasm for the Buddhist practice of mindfulness will run so far ahead of science that this promising psychological tool could turn into another fad. So what we're doing, you know, what we've been doing, what Buddhism has been doing for 2,500 years, has, over the last 50 years, gained increasing attention. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, at the University of Massachusetts, back in the 80s, I guess it was, started the, uh, some, he took meditation out of the Buddhist context and just basically took the mindfulness part of meditation and then he called it mindfulness-based stress reduction. Had a whole program where he used mindfulness-based stress reduction, basically paying attention to your breath, feeling your body with your body, all the things that we were always talking about. And he did it with a control group and looked at things like psoriasis, asthma, anxiety, and showed some very um, interesting interesting results, results that captivated the scientific and psychological community's attention. 
And then there's been many evolutions of that uh, since that time. Uh, Laura specializes in uh, ACT, I think. Um, Maria Linehan has taken, taken mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques and used it for borderline personality cases or cases of severe depression where people often are become very fragmented or people become very erratic or people become very emotionally labile. So there's a lot of um, interest, as you all know, in meditation or in the mindfulness part of meditation. In Dharma and Buddhism, we actually say that mindfulness is one part of the whole picture. Because in Buddhist meditation, we really are talk about using the whole body. So talking about using the heart, using the devotional side of things, using the part of, love, of loving kindness, using the part that really has altruistic feelings to help others, as well as being mindful and attentive. Chosen's got a book uh, coming out. The title is a little unclear right now. It might be called The Joyful, Joyful Mindful Eating or the Book of Mindful Eating, or something like, of that nature. And what they've done is she submitted it to Shambhala Publishers, which is a big, one of the major Buddhist publishers in the country. And they said, okay, this is a great book. We would like to make it a crossover book. That is a book that takes all the Buddhist principles of mindfulness, being present, appreciation, and take the Buddhist part out of it and put it in the, in the larger context so that it's really attractive to many people. She said, okay, well, if it's helpful, we'll do that, and then we'll, we'll do a supplemental book or another book that has the Buddhist part in it. So it's, it's you know, th this, this theme is really hot and uh, has the ability to be very uh, beneficial. The truth that being alive, being paying attention to being alive, you know, being present, is not exactly big news, but it really is catching our whole culture the problem we have is that it has the potential, as that article I read, to become a fad. And I think a fad, you know, we, we all have seen hundreds of fads that have gone, you know, gone raging through, everything from pet rocks to you know, primal scream to whatever the current things are. There's a zillion different kinds of fads. And I think of a fad as, at least certainly in the psychological and the alternative medical profession or the regular medical profession, the fads that go through any of these fields, fads of science, fads of popular culture, is they're essentially magic. <laughs> the hope is that something simple, something unexamined, will have a, a quick, easy, magical effect. So if I just come to a Dharma center and pay attention once in a while, that will have a magical effect on transforming my life into me being a bodhisattva. Or if I decide to add some B2 to my diet, or if I decide to increase my protein, or I decide to mitigate the amount of saturated fats I have, or I decide to not use plastic, or decide to do some, some little thing like that, that that's going to have a major effect. That something simple and easy is going to somehow transform my life of difficulties into a life of ease and pleasure and joy and satisfaction. So Buddhism, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, if it becomes a fad, it means that if people think, okay, I'll just go to a mindfulness workshop 
I'll learn about mindfulness, I'll understand mindfulness up here, and voila, I'm a new person. Or I will go and take a class in Kung Fu, or I'll do something. The, f- the hard part of it is that nothing is magic, and that it has the ability, Dharma has the ability to be incredibly deep and incredibly penetrating if there is commitment. And I think that that's true for a lot of other things. If we are committed to them and we examine them carefully and we put our attention into them, many things have the ability to be a benefit. And if they're not a benefit, then by examining them carefully and looking at them meticulously, we don't go overboard with them. This notion of there's a magical solution to something, if I just learn a little meditation, you know, my mind will suddenly become calm and... That's it. I don't have to actually practice. Is complete delusion, as you all know. So whether we're doing meditation and dharma, whether we're doing music or kung fu, or whether we're going to medical school, you know, commitment, 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 attention, 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 is the, if there's a magic elixir, it's that. There's actually some studies that that were done decades ago, actually, on what was the common denominator about geniuses. And so they looked at geniuses in several different areas, and they found the only common denominator with them is they all had the ability to concentrate. They all had the ability to put their attention on one thing and really commit to that one thing they were attending to. There was a very interesting other study in this series of articles that Alan gave us from the Science Times from February, and it's called The Advantage of Closing a Few Doors. And this is uh, uh, excerpted from a uh, book called Predictably Irrational. So I'm going to lay out this, this study and the implications here of it. The article begins with a case of a Chinese general named Zhang Yu, who was going on the offensive in a military war. And before he went on the offensive, he burned all of his ships and crushed all the cooking pots of his whole army. And so he said, okay, guys, there's no retreat. Now, Cortez tried to do the same thing. You know, Cortez burned all of his ships and said, there's no retreat, you got to go forward. And that had a slightly different effect. So this general burnt his ships, broke his cooking pots, and said, the only way out is to commit yourself. There's no, there's no retreat. You can't, you can't go back. Well, they, the, this particular study, if you can't go back, you have to let go, was the foundation, that particular uh, notion, was the foundation of this series of studies that was done. And it's a very simple series of studies. Okay? The study was, on a computer screen, there were three doors. One, two, three. Okay? Now, the, peop- the, the people who are the experimentees, could have the option of clicking on one of the three doors. And behind one of the three doors, there was a little coin icon that you get some money. So if you clicked on the doors that had the most money on them, behind them, you would get more money. So there's a little bit of reward to this clicking. So if you clicked correctly, you clicked most efficiently, you would get the most efficient amount of money. You know, probably was 10 cents a door or something like that. Now, if you did this for a number of times and you found that this best strategy was you click quickly on each door, click, 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 
you saw which one had the most money behind it, and then you spent most of your time clicking on the door that had the most money behind it. That paid off. And people would do this exercise, they would practice this a little bit, and they'd find that by clicking on the door that paid off most, they would get the most money, and that was a fairly predictable outcome of the game. They then added a variable into it, and the variable was the doors you aren't clicking on very often begin to disappear. So you have just three doors, and you're clicking on one door, and you know this one door, if you keep clicking on it, you'll get the best reward. But if you stop clicking on the other two doors, they begin fading away. And you don't have the option of clicking on them anymore. Well, people became somewhat anxious about losing the option to click on these other doors. And so they would start taking their clicks away from the door that was most productive and using some of their clicks to keep clicking on the other doors to keep them open just in case. Just in case there might be some more money behind them. And they actually found that as this experiment went on, these doors would begin to fade away and people would stop clicking on the useful door and keep start clicking on these useless doors just to keep the options open. And they actually diminished their returns by 15% from what was the most potential. And if you added more doors and you had more doors fading away, then people, in order to keep their options open, even though the doors were not very effective, they would stop doing what was most effective and start clicking on the unaffected doors to keep them present, to keep them open. You got the idea? Very simple. Now, the thing that is interesting about that is exactly what we all tend to do. Is that we have a series of doors in our lives, we have a series of options in our lives, and we start running around trying to keep all of our options or keep most of our options, or keep many of our options open, even though they may not pay off anything, even though they may not be particularly worth, any, worth anything, even though we may have gotten tired of doing something, even though we may have done it enough times that we, you know, are not so interested in it. But we keep trying to keep our options open all the time. Now, in the... Uh, in, in my generation, in my parents' generation, the way that people kept their options open was not throwing anything away. I might need that someday. You know, I might have some use for that. And so you begin putting it in storage containers, putting it in the basement. Oh, and maybe I want to keep my options open. That maybe I don't want to go out and buy that thing again. You know, maybe my neighbor will need it. And so at the monastery, it's very easy for us to fill the entire back of the gym up. I can do it all by myself because I keep trying to keep the options open. Okay. Some of the younger generation who have seen the problems with too much stuff and knowing that that really is not a very effective way of living your life is keeping all your options with stuff open. It's more helpful to forget about some of the stuff and just pay attention to what really is important. But their tendency is to keep their options for experiences open. Well, I don't really want to settle on this particular career because I might want to do this or this or this. I might want to go to Europe, and so I don't want to commit myself for a job that a contract that's going to take me three years. I may, I may want to travel around. I may not want to stay in this particular job. I may want to do da 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 I may not be satisfied by, being, by graduating with my you know, BS degree in science, but maybe I'll also try to get a degree in English literature and archaeology, so that just in case I get interested in those fields. Does this sound, does this sound familiar? Is this, 
So we have that tendency ourselves of, I want to, to keep my options open, but in trying to keep so many options open, I actually am not as effective in my life as I could be. Or what's even, uh, what's also, we all have had that experience is, because I want so many options, so many choices, I keep all my choices open and then I get completely inundated, completely bamboozled, confused by all the choices that I've kept open. So would we rather go to a store that sells three kinds of ice cream or one that sells 25 kinds of ice cream? Would we rather go to a store that has you know, two kinds of olive oil, if you happen to be an olive oil aficionado, or one that has 50 kinds of olive oil? And any of you who have gone to the store that has 50 kinds of olive oil and have stood in front of the, the, the racks with 50 kinds of olive oil trying to make a choice of which of these 50 kinds of olive oil, none of which you can taste, all of which try to look alluring, I mean, eventually it just gets down to completely random choice. Well, that bottle looks interesting. Well, that price is right. We've all done that with the ice cream. You know, there's so many flavors of ice cream out there that even though you've been eating ice cream for 50 years, there you can always go and there's some new ice creams you've never had before. And people can stand in front of the ice cream you know, thing trying to say, well, this one, this one, maybe that one, maybe not this one. Well, this one's more expensive. This is less expensive. This is more unusual. This is a little more flat. This is a little less sugar. And so in trying to make the very best choice that we can, but keep our options open at the same time, our lives just get really, really muddled. Our lives get really, really muddled. We think, would I rather have a job that I'm going to make, let's just pull out a figure, $70,000 every year, or the possibility you'll make $100,000 in five years. If you want to commit yourself to this, I'm not going to make this $100,000 in five years. Definitely not. No way. I'm going to let that go. And I'm going to only take this kind of lesser paying job. Well, we'd all have to think carefully about that. And a lot of people, there's actually studies that show that if you have a series of, of descending Amounts that you could make $100,000 one year, and the next year you make 90, and the next year you make 80, and the next year you make um, $70,000. Or one year you make $50,000, the next year you make $60,000, and the next year you make seventy dollars or $80,000. People tend to choose the one that gives them the best option, that has the most hope, the one that, that tends to look like it's growing, even though the total number or amount of money might be less. We're somehow hardwired to keep our options open, to look for what might be the best choice. And when we're in that mode, if we really get stuck in that mode, it's hard to get anything accomplished. We're afraid to let go. We're afraid to let go and to be, for example, Meditating right here, right now, be in this present moment, because what might be going on out there, what maybe I should be doing this, maybe I should be thinking about this or that. Well, maybe if I don't keep my options open, maybe I'm going to end up a loser. Or maybe I really won't make the grade in some way. We're really afraid of letting go. People come to meditation retreats, people come to session. And 
to, to let go, let the mind let go of all these options that are out there, all these things they might do, should do, may have done, did do, all these. It's really, really hard, as every single person here knows. It's really hard to let go, to really voluntarily let go, to close some options, to make a commitment. Because when we make a commitment, when we say, okay, I'm going to get married to this person, we say, okay, I'm going to let go of all those other potentially delicious options out there. And I am going to make this choice. And even though there might be somebody better out there, and there probably is, because depending on your, your perspective, when you make a, a choice, when you make a commitment, suddenly the choice that you make, the commitment you make, becomes filled with potential, has the potential for being rich and being satisfying and being deep. Suddenly, if we commit ourselves to a particular job, really deeply commit ourselves to that job, then our, all of our creativity, all of our energy can go into that job. If we really deeply commit ourselves to sitting in this place, in this time, in this moment, that deep commitment right there is the opening of wisdom and compassion and clarity. So when we say the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, it means that by completely committing ourselves to this moment, I'm paying, I pay complete attention to what's right here, right now. I'm going to commit myself completely right here. When somebody's talking to me or I'm talking to them, I'm going to commit myself to listening to them, to listen to what they're saying right now, and not what I might say sometime in the future. I'm going to commit myself to being engaged with the person I'm engaged with and not thinking maybe there's somebody more interesting or better someplace else. I'm sure we've all been at parties or meetings or conferences or something, and you're talking to somebody, and you're talking to somebody who's not a real dynamic person or not a real, you know, charismatic person or not a mover and shaker, and the subtle feeling of, well, there should be somebody else out there that would be more interesting to talk to, I really should talk to. Of course, they're thinking the same thing about you. And so there's a subtle feeling of, of the people you're, you're talking with that somehow there are some, you know, those marginalized people and there are some people who really are the ones that you want to spend your energy with. People, what we are, if we really commit ourselves to what's right in front of us, to really are willing to let go and commit ourselves, whether we do it in meditation, whether we do it in a community, whether we do it in a family, whether we do it in our job, it is the commitment and the willing to be present is exactly the healing elixir, exactly the nutrient that helps things grow, that helps things, helps us grow. That is the, I think, the key to satisfaction in this dissatisfying world. So it's really hard to do that. And yet, it is commitment. It is the willingness to commit ourselves to both to our projects, to what our our aspirations are, to our goals, but also to commit ourselves to this life that we're living, this life that we're leading, right here. So many people are not committed to to living their own life. They're not committed to really saying, okay, I've got to deal with this particular body and mind, and I'm committed to, to working with it. But they keep thinking, well, if I can just get rid of part of this, then it'll all be well. But to really commit oneself to living one's own life, 
to really commit oneself to being in one's own relationship, to really commit oneself to dealing with, is essentially Buddha Dharma. So we all have done, we all have recited uh, the, the five reflections. Five reflections are, uh, I'm of the nature to grow old, there's no way to escape growing old. I'm of the nature to get ill, there's no way to escape having ill health. I'm of the nature to die, there's no way to escape death. Everything that I do and everyone I see is of the nature of change. There's no way to avoid being separated from them. My deeds are my closest companions. I'm the beneficiary of my deeds. Leading the last one out on karma. The truth is that things are going to change, that we are going to get old, we are going to get sick, and we're going to die. And given that truth, what is really important? What is it that we want to commit ourselves to? What is it that we, not anybody else, not any you know, any guru or any should or any ought, but what is it that this particular life that we are going to commit ourselves to? What is it that we want to make a decision to do that? What are we going to put ourselves, pour ourselves into 100%? And only we can make that realistic choice. Nobody else can do it for us. But what we can do in a community, what a teacher can do is just keep saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. What is it that really is deeply beneficial. Pay attention to what you're doing. Pay attention to what you're thinking. Commit yourself. So, in terms of our little community here, in terms of what we have, we've, the people who are here have done, we have committed ourselves. You've each committed yourself, almost everybody, has committed yourselves to come and practice because so many people are here every week. And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because there's a commitment. There's a commitment to say it's, thank you, it's Thursday night, you know, (laughs) all the nights look the same when you're up here. Um, It's Thursday night, so it's the time to to come. I make that commitment to do that, or whatever our particular commitments are. One of the things that we see in in working with addictions and working with other, you know, problematic behaviors like that is there's always this feeling that someplace else there's it's better, or I would be better someplace else, or I'd have more fun someplace else, or I would... But to really make the commitment to say, okay, it may be true that there may be all sorts of other places that we would be, have different experiences, but I am here right now. So, our particular community, the Zen Community of Oregon, Great Vows Zen Monastery, the new Urban Dharma Center, which name is going to be picked and revealed in the near future, um, thanks to many people's uh, input, and if you have any more input about the name, you know, there's a nice thing online, put your two bits in, uh, the, the things are beginning to, to coalesce a little bit, so um, it's your last chance, um, because, hmm? don't say we didn't give you a chance, but we, we're go- we are going to commit ourselves to something, so, you know, once we commit ourselves, we commit ourselves to Great Vows in Monastery. When we committed ourselves to Great Vows in the Monastery, I thought that was the weirdest name. You know, I mean, to call up, somebody calls up and you answer the phone, Great Vow is in Monastery. But after a while, after you make a commitment to it, it sounds perfectly normal. You know? Of course, of course it's a Great Vow. Of course that's what we want to embody as a Great Vow. Of course. But in the beginning, it sure sounded unusual. So we're going to commit ourselves to a name. If you would like to be part of that process, there's a lot of activity online. You can read it, you can, you can participate in it. We also have, the board has agreed that this community is going to commit itself to finding a new facility. 
So once we make a commitment like that, we have to, of course, the time element is a little unknown at this point, but we make a commitment. And so we've looked at places. We have different fundraising groups are looking at, at, at funds. We're looking at programming. We're looking at lots of different things. Because once you make a commitment to something, then we just have to keep going step by step by step. And of course, it'll be up and down and easy and hard. But if you make a commitment to something, we just keep going forward. Little by little by little, you know, you encounter barrier, 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 and suddenly things open. Barrier, 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 and suddenly things open. Like, like that happened with the monastery. So because this community, the board and the people who have been part of the community, have made this commitment to a new facility, which means that we have to commit ourselves to new programming, new people coming in, making offering of the Dharma in new and interesting ways, there's lots of room for people who'd like to join in that commitment. It's your choice. But there are committees that are being formed. The board is having retreats and discussions. So there's a lot of things that are both happening, but it's all coming out of different people's commitment. And the commitment, of course, is not to, I'm going to commit myself to that community or that thing. That's useful. It's always helpful. It's helpful to people to commit themselves to it. But what's the most helpful thing is if we commit ourselves to our own practice. We commit ourselves to being mindful, to being present, to being alive, we make that commitment, then wherever we go, whatever group we're a part of, is, a ben- is benefited. If we don't make this primary commitment to become alive, this primary commitment to be really mindful and appreciative of this life, this unique life that each of us is living, then whatever we do on the outside is, has been dampened, uh, ineffectual, half-hearted. So I encourage people to have this primary commitment to making the very, very, very most out of your own life, to seeing your own life, your own heart, your own mind, as clearly and deeply as possible, and then to commit to using your whole being, whatever way is most appropriate, whatever way you feel will offer the greatest life to the world and to you.